What's Canada? No, Canada's in in between there. It's America's hat. <laughs> Hey everybody and welcome back to the first episode welcome back welcome <laughs> to the first episode of the javascript jabber podcast uh this week on our panel we have aj o'neill that's me yep so since we're new do you want to just introduce yourself okay sure <clears throat> so um i work at spot rf it's a radar company but we get to do some cool stuff with html5 and um our, our browser-based software and some of our internal applications and uh, a little bit of Node.js as well. Um, and I first got interested in JavaScript because of Ruby, actually. I'd only messed with it as much as people who hated have messed with it. <clears throat> I started going to the, the Ruby group and then got into Rails and, um, and then jQuery. And then uh, once I actually started learning JavaScript for real and saw the good parts, I became a fan. All right. Also on our podcast, we have Peter Cooper. Hello, hello, hello. Um, yeah, I guess if anyone's listening to this, they may have heard of it because I'm going to link it up in all of my various bits and pieces, which I'm uh, curator of JavaScript Weekly, which is a uh, weekly newsletter about JavaScript. Um, also co-host of the JavaScript show. I know perhaps I shouldn't promote another podcast on this one, but uh, we're going we're gonna to link you up. So uh, hopefully we'll have some listeners coming across. Um, I'm also co-chair of O'Reilly's new Fluent Conference, which is taking place in May. And I'll probably get to talk about that some more some other time. Um, but yeah, I'm not actually that well known for my contributions in JavaScript code-wise, although I've you know developed quite a bit, um, done quite a bit of CoffeeScript as well. Uh, I guess my only semi-claim to fame with JavaScript is I wrote the first um, kind of Ajax helper library for uh, Rails back in 2005, very uh, before it even supported Ajax. But it was quickly usurped, and uh, Rails built all that stuff in. But uh, it was an interesting couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, that's me. All right, we also have Jameson Dance. Hi, I'm Jameson Dance. I also work at SpotRF, so um, I, I work with AJ on, on some JavaScript and browser and, and Node stuff. Nepotism. Um, oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> a little bit of that. Um, I also dabble in uh, machine learning, data mining, natural language processing, that kind of stuff on the side, so I do some of that for fun. All right, and I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. Um, I do things like uh, video tutorials, mostly for Ruby. Uh, kind of got into the JavaScript stuff. Uh, when I first had my first programming job doing Rails, uh, I worked with a guy that was really big into JavaScript, uh, particularly into prototype.js, which nobody really uses anymore. I won't say nobody, but almost nobody. Um, and uh, I really kind of got to see the power behind it and thought it was a cool language, but didn't really get into it until... Um, people started talking about Node.js and stuff like that and decided to have a second look. And I'm really, I really kind of dig it as a language. So um, I'm getting more and more involved in the community and I'm excited to see where it can go. So anyway, so this week we're, we were talking about um, uh, asynchronous handling and uh, the event loop in the browsers. And uh, AJ's kind of an expert on that. So why don't you go ahead and start the conversation and we'll, we'll take it from there. Okay, so uh, my first uh, realization of the, the the problems of asynchronous coding or the joys or whatever you want to look at it as was I was creating a little app 
where I wanted to integrate. I think it was like Facebook and Amazon, and um, and then I wanted to get like both requests at the same time. And 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 I was doing that very amateur mistake of you know you set a timeout for a second, you check to see if the request came in, and you set the timeout again, and you know that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's it's. I guess the challenge to JavaScript is just understanding, first of all, that there is an event model, that it's not um, the same thing that you're used to with, say, Ruby or Python. All right. So, are, are we talking about um, are we talking about things like the what is it set timeout that you get in the browser? Or are we talking more about things like when you do an AJAX call, let's say, and you have this success function blah 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 and so it kind of sets up an event so that when it, when it returns it calls that anonymous function are, are well, those yeah yeah i mean both of those you know kind of tying together um the same event loop so uh, i i think um one problem a lot of people have when they come to javascript i know i did is the idea that there is an event loop that it's not just your code getting executed sequentially um maybe we could talk about that a little bit more just to explain how that kind of works yeah, that because because I mean I think lots of people come from like C and Ruby and I don't know just just stuff where you each line of code happens and then the next line of code happens. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. So yeah, I've seen that a lot too. Where uh, or or people ask like, is this a synchronous function or an asynchronous function? Like when you start talking about something like uh, for each or other methods that appear to take a callback, and then people want to know well. Well, how do you know if it's synchronous or asynchronous? So a good definition for that would be that it is synchronous when you're going to complete the function and everything inside of it, everything that you can visually see inside of that function um, before you return or the function closes. Whereas the asynchronous part is if you have something like a set timeout or you have... Um, an XML HTTP request, or um, or you're waiting for a user event that you don't know when it's going to happen. Then, when your function ends, you're returning undefined, or perhaps you're returning some type of um, emitter or callback handling object, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what happens then if, let's say, I want when I hover over this um, icon that it changes colors or whatever? Um, what happens in, in that instance when I set that hover state up with jQuery or whatever? So you're attaching an event or a function uh-huh. to the event handler. And when you move the mouse, as long as nothing else is processing, then you're going to see the mouse cursor move and then it's going to fire an event for every pixel or however often it can handle um, firing the events. And then when, when the processor is free to handle that event, then it will execute your function and, and carry out um, whatever it had inside. So let's say, for example, I mean, this is one of the reasons that there are event handlers in JavaScript is the browser um, has a lot of things going on. And if you wanted to do some sort of computation that was going to take, say, a second, uh, then if the browser were locked during that time, you wouldn't be able to move your mouse. Uh-huh. So the events make it so that you can have little snippets of code that run, and things that would take a long time will then be enqueued. So, you know, if we were to to do something like, uh, 
in, in C code where, where you're waiting for the user's input. You know, so I forget what it is, but you know, you open standard in and you're going to read into it. Then mm-hmm. your program halts. You sit there, you wait, you do nothing. Right. And you don't want to do that in the browser. You want the hover event to fire. You want the visual display to change. And you want to do all that within a, a single thread so that amateur, more or less, programmers can do something without having immediate failures and confusion. All right. So that makes sense. Um, what are some of the things that people use it for? I mean, we, we've talked about hover states and, and things like that. Are there any other like major things that people... I think the most common one is just HTTP requests. You're just going to get some data from somewhere. Right. right. I mean, that's all, all the Ajax libraries and stuff. Like that's where they all started because it's going to take a while for it to come back off the network, and then you want to do something with it when it gets there, but you don't want to block while you're waiting. Yeah. Don't forget game loops as well. I mean, obviously JavaScript heavily used in gaming, uh, casual gaming, especially more and more now. And I've been playing a lot with the the gaming side of JavaScript, and there's so many uh, things using events there, just because actually it's it's kind of an old pattern from. Um, you know, sort of game development over the last 20 years using event loops, so it's kind of a natural fit. Yeah, so you just set a callback for whenever somebody does something? Yeah, I mean, sometimes in... I mean, they're actually adding APIs so that you can request animation frames and stuff like that now, but uh, previously, you know, people were using, um, you know, setting intervals to do, you know, a certain number of frames per second or that type of thing, Um, but they are actually changing the APIs on that type of thing, so there's a little bit more to it um, that meets the eye, Uh, in JavaScript, especially with the APIs that browsers are offering now with uh, Canvas and all that type of stuff. So one other thing I think it'd be important to talk about is how, so, I mean, we've talked about the event loop and and kind of how it works, but how you actually um, kind of chain asynchronous things together. Like what if you want to do a bunch of things in in sequence or, or do something once a bunch of asynchronous things have finished. I think that's a pretty common thing. And that's why you see that like pyramid of doom pattern a lot of times where you just do everything inside of a callback to the next thing. So you just get this triangle that goes way off the edge of your browser and, or way off the edge of your screen in, in your JavaScript code. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that, you know, I, I think the, the pyramid approach and then what I was talking about earlier with the set timeout check and then set timeout again, uh, uh-huh. those, those two approaches are, are very common when you're first getting into JavaScript because it, you're just not used to an event model. But um, so when you've when you've got the pyramid, because uh, you want to make a request to uh, Facebook, and when Facebook calls back with a login, then you want to make a request to um, Amazon, or you want to make a request to Twitter. You know they're somehow dependent. Um, that's when the waterfall is actually being used appropriately. If you can do two things at one time, then you should do them both at the same time, or rather put them both in the event loop at the same time. But then you have to figure out well. Uh, when do I know which one is wh- when they both come back? And there's not really any built-in mechanism for either of those. And if you think about it, in the beginning with JavaScript, you had set timeout, set interval, and and uh, event handlers on the DOM. And I think that was it. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until what 2000, 2001 that Microsoft added the XML HTTP request. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. And so. I don't think it was built with the idea that you would want to be doing so many asynchronous things in mind when it was first created. It's, so there's, there isn't a built-in way to say, oh, well, this is the, the clear way to handle that solution. Um, and that's kind of what led me to create the futures.js library. And just a quick rundown. Uh, so say you've got the waterfall. The way that I like to do it 
the, the, the poor man's way without using a library or anything is simply to separate uh, that waterfall into functions that are all indented at the same level um, and then have at the end of each function the call to the next function. So when I look at my code, the very last thing to execute is all the way at the top and then the very first thing to execute is all the way down at the bottom and every function calls the next. And it's a little bit nicer than the waterfall because you've got named functions, so hopefully you're naming them something useful um, rather than just having these anonymous functions nested further and further and further. Uh, you can reduce some scope problems that way because there are problems that occur with uh, scope where you've got a variable in one place and then you modify it in another place and it turns out that in that lower scope you might have done something two or three times and when you get to the next place where you're going to modify that variable it was already modified so it's you know it's the thread problem all over again uh -huh. um, so if you keep your scopes as high as possible you definitely have much less of a chance of running into that um, has this variable been modified when I wasn't thinking it would problem so uh, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So basically what you're saying is that um, you, instead of having, you know, let's say that you have one event that depend, or you have one function that needs to be called once two other functions have completed, what, you, what you've what you set up is so that it, it just does it all in a certain sequence anyway, or? Well, I'm saying if you have a sequence, uh -huh. instead of going through that, uh, what would you call that, uh, Jameson, the death pyramid? Yeah, the, the Pyramid of Doom. Okay, Pyramid of Doom. So instead of doing the Pyramid of Doom where you're indenting, 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 indenting anonymous function one after the other to the point that when you go back and look at your code, you can't tell what it does anymore. You can just tell that it's indented 50 spaces. Right. That you keep all of those functions indented at the same level and give them proper names. And that helps just with the organization. Oh, I see. That makes sense. So so then what you say, do is in your Pyramid of Doom, instead of it, being indented this is code readability issue right yeah so instead of indenting you know yeah for for each anonymous function that needs to be called within the other anonymous function you you just set up an event that calls back out to your list of possible functions that it can latch onto and and execute based on the the event that was fired right but if you want to do two things at the same time the poor man's way to do it is uh to set a variable as a counter and um, then for every function you have, you increment the counter by one. Then when all the functions are done, you have them all call the same callback. Right. And so every time that callback gets called, it decrements the counter. And then when the counter reaches zero is when you call the final callback with inside of it the data that has all of the outputs from the other functions. And so that's what the, the two functions that I've implemented in futures for that one is called for each async, um, which handles the waterfall or sequence. They're both very similar. Uh -huh. And then I created a function called join, which does exactly what I just said. Every time you add a function, it increments. And when they're all done, it decrements and calls the final callback. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. I like it. <laughs> but so, so it's kind you, of a workflow manager. Yeah, definitely. But one thing you want to be careful of is, is still understanding the difference between doing things sequentially on purpose and doing things in parallel on purpose. Because you can do things sequentially on accident and just waste time. Right. But you can also do things in parallel and hog down the browser or, or even cause your application to start throwing errors um, 
because, for example, you can only do six in, in the, the latest browsers. You can only do, I think, six uh, web requests at a time. Yep. And so, if you're like, oh, well, you know, these these things don't need to be sequential. So I'll just go ahead and do them all at once, and you've got uh, 20 requests you want to make or something like that. You know, say you've been queuing these up from user changes, and, and now it's time to, I don't know, push your memory database out to somewhere it's going to get saved or you know something like that. Um, well, if you've queued up 20 of these web requests, then when you go to do them, only six of them are going to happen, and, and until those are done, the others are still waiting anyway. And then you end up with a case where maybe you get a HTTP timeout, and then you get an error thrown when your code's perfectly valid. Right. Make sense? Mm-hmm. So you gotta you gotta understand what it is that you want to do on purpose and what you want to do because it's convenient, and make sure that they they align right. and that you're not doing too many requests at once just because you can. So is this? Are there any other areas that we run into log jams like this in in the browser, or or is uh, the HTTP request kind of the only Thing there um, I haven't really worked much with the web workers or uh, yeah, you should talk web about sockets uh-huh. well have any, have any of you been working with either of those not really no when I first tried web sockets it was a while ago and and it was kind of finicky so I haven't played with it since huh. but uh I I want to pick it back up in the next week or so I've got a little project I hope to play with huh. I, I haven't done anything with web sockets I've done a little bit with web workers and web workers basically, someone will probably correct me because I'm going to mangle this description, but um, it, it seems like they kind of spawn off another JavaScript execution thread that's just pretty much separate from, from the one that's running in, in your browser. And, you're right. then, and then you can communicate just via message pass- passing. So in your web worker, you can, you can compute some stuff and then pass the message back to the browser thread. And then in the browser, you listen on the web workers events so if you had some computations that would take a long time you could just spin up a web worker and then the web worker would do it all and then submit the data back via a message that would fire an event in the browser um huh that sounds really interesting i'll have to look into that yeah now, There's also a Fibers library for Node that will do a similar type of thing in, if you're in the Node side of things. I thought Fibers was to make it look less asynchronous or am I mistaken? Oh, you can use it to do that, yeah, but it, you can uh, it built up on top of the extra stuff that will add uh, threading support to Node. Okay. It uses threads to do it. Yeah, so one thing about web workers is that it's you don't get the full browser context. Um, like, like I said, I haven't played with them very much, but uh, I remember reading that you don't get things like XML HTTP request. Um, I don't think you have access to the DOM. I think it's just a JavaScript context in which things are running. Okay. You can pass through references to stuff though, because I've seen people use web workers to build like sandbox um, implementations, and you can pass through um, functions and references to things that you want the web worker to access. Um, so it's kind of a, a sanitized environment, which is kind of cool actually. Yeah. Huh. I- I think you can somewhat emulate that with an iframe as well. I mean, not that I'm suggesting you use an iframe to do a web worker's job, but just uh, if you did need access to some of those other things, you know, you didn't want to deal with the limitations of the web worker for very specific reasons. That uh, might work as well. I see. So I'm a little curious too. Um, d- does the asynchronous uh, loop and the eventing work the same way in something like Node.js, where there is no browser? It's just a, a JavaScript environment that you can run things in. Well, I think if if you think of V8, um, that would be more like your web worker space, where you just have a JavaScript context. 
Vegetable uh, juice. <laughs> or, or the Google JavaScript engine. Yeah, one of those two. <laughs> yeah, what are we um, talking about? Anyway. <laughs> but in Node.js, it, the, the difference is the API is different, and you have a lot more that you can do, but it's still the same event loop. Um, but I use, I use a lot of the Node libraries in the browser, like the node event emitter is my primary emitter that I use in the browser because it's a very, very good solution to a, a, a wide range of problems. Uh-huh. If you are on Node, though, there is something you can install called Node Sync, um, which gives you that kind of being able to write asynchronous code in a very synchronous way um, thing again. But that's definitely not, that won't work in the browser. That's, it, it digs into um, the Node runtime. So d- d- why would you want to do that? That seems like you're... Using Node because it's asynchronous and then making it synchronous again. Like, why not just use something? Oh yeah, no, it, it will do. It will, you can write the code in a synchronous style, but it will still run asynchronously. If you see what I mean? Huh. You literally wrap it in this big function call called sync, and then you pass in a function, and then anything that's in that function will run asynchronously, even if something blocks. Um, it won't hold up the entire uh, system. Huh. So. Chuck, you, you asked about um, when you want to do asynchronous stuff. And we, we mentioned stuff in the browser, but I mean, if you're talking about Node, then there's all kinds of stuff too, like talking to databases, file system stuff, just all kinds of system calls, then, then there's lots of opportunity for asynchronous things. So that's an interesting point. Um, I think we all have experience with Ruby, and Ruby uh, generally doesn't do I.O. blocking. So if it's doing some kind of I.O. like talking to a database or this or that, um, then it won't block on that. It'll just move on, and then when it comes back, it'll it'll pick it up again. So is is that that kind of the same thing here that we're talking about then, or? Well, that's what do you mean by that? Because I thought that um, I, I mean I've just used like the MySQL library with Ruby, but it seemed like uh, file reads and and database access and whatnot in Ruby is blocking, isn't it? Do you mean if you pass in blocks, Chuck? Um, my understanding is, is let's say that, uh, you have, and I'm not a Ruby expert, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proficient with rails and I understand Yehuda. a lot of things, but why did you leave us? Yeah. Yehuda was supposed to be on. We're not sure where he is, but we weren't, oh. we weren't doing super well with the communication. So he might show up in like five minutes and say, okay, I'm here. Cause we said to come on, Chuck, Mountain. come on, Chuck, dig, dig that hole. <laughs> yeah, dig that hole. So, so my understanding is that um, Ruby has some provision for uh, not blocking on I/O, and I don't remember exactly how it works. Um, that's true in one point nine. Yeah, I think that's oh, new. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But um, anyway, so it can it can make a request, and then um, since it's single threaded, it can go and do some other work, and then I'm I'm not explaining this well at all. I think I think what you're probably getting at is that if you do have multiple threads running in Ruby 1.9, and you do um, a, a kind of blocking I/O request in one of those threads, it won't seize the entire interpreter up because of the global interpreter lock. Right. It will allow the other threads to continue running. Um, yes, but that, you still have to have those multiple threads. It's not all on a single thread. In that case, it would just block if you make a blocking call. Oh, right. so, you, so you're, if you're using Ruby threads, you mean? Uh, yeah, so you have to, you'd have to be using a Ruby thread. Um, okay. Yeah, which obviously, well, it, well, it is a real thread in 1.9, um, but it's still hooked up with it's this whole locked. global interpreter lock thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was, and and I'm sorry I didn't communicate it well. I don't I don't completely understand the inner workings of the. VM. So um, anyway, so yeah, I made myself sound like an idiot, but that's okay. <laughs> you could have uh, gotten away with it, Chuck. This is the JavaScript jabber. No one knows. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, so yeah, I/O asynchronous stuff. 
Um, are there any other examples of things that, that Node does that are asynchronous that aren't call-outs to other systems? Um, I mean, everything that you would do and see that blocks Node doesn't. The, all the network access, all the file access, well, um, right. database you, access. You can make non-blocking calls in C too, right? You just can't attach callbacks. It's, it's hecka complicated. Especially if you're looking for a cross-platform approach, I mean, there's libraries like uh, libev, which Node used to use. Um, but yeah, it's it's not quite so ele- uh, elegant by any means. Until they turn to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing I want to mention: there's a lot of people that that approach JavaScript with the idea of, oh, I'm used to synchronous code, so I want to write synchronous code. And I think that that is a poor paradigm or a poor way to start it because um, you end up realizing later that you need something um, asynchronous that, that can't be done synchronously. Like, for example, there most of the APIs in Node have a sync option. So there's fs.read and there's fs.read sync, right? Um, but some things you can't do that for. And then you end up having to mangle your code to add this callback as the last parameter. Or or even worse, like you have a callback and then you decide that you need to add yet another parameter to a function. And so then you end up doing this, this guesswork where it's like, okay, if the first argument exists and the second argument exists and the third argument isn't a function, but the fourth argument is, then that's the callback. And it's very hairy. I, I hate that. I was saying I think they got it right with set timeout, where the function comes first. I think it's a very good model. I wish almost that everything in JavaScript, you'd either pass in a function or null as the first parameter so that when you find later on you've got to go back and make it asynchronous, you don't have to go through your API and change everything. Right. So I'm still trying to get my head around some of the evented thinking that goes on with JavaScript. And um, I, I, I kind of get that there's something there. There's an event listener or something that when you trigger an event, it, it, uh, it picks things up and then just executes the function. Uh, does it do that right away, and is that just built into the language? Yeah, it's it's built into the language. You can I, a really good read is, and I'll give a link for this later. But there's a, an article: your coffee shop doesn't use two-phase commits, and it and it describes the event paradigm really well. They're talking about databases, but it it really applies to events well. So think, you know, um, you go to Starbucks, maybe you don't drink coffee, you go to the cocoa bean, right? And you order your coffee or your hot chocolate or whatever, and then you go and sit down, right? You pay and you sit down. They got the most important part of what they wanted, which is your money and what you want. And then you sit around and wait. It's not like you go up and you say, okay, I want a, uh, I want a coffee. And they, they say, okay, we'll just wait here in line and we'll take 45 seconds to get that to you and then serve the next customer, right? If only they did. <laughs> Um, right, so you don't wind up in a paying queue and then a getting your food queue. Well, you kind of do end up in both those queues, but but at separate times. Am I? Did Yehuda come back? Yeah, I thought I heard him there for I a second. Him. Everyone say hi, Yehuda. Speak. Oh, dropped off. Uh, I, I think he's gone. Man, that California internet. <laughs> I guess the be, thing to remember, Chuck, because you were asking about inventive models, is that you know they have been around a long time. I mean, it's not something that is new to JavaScript as such. Right. Um, just that JavaScript kind of forces you to use one. 
Um, but if you look at applications, like even just like a regular Windows application built in the mid-90s or something like that, um, if you were building it with Visual C or uh, Visual Basic or whatever, um, you would tend to have, you know, because of the demands of a GUI system, you would have an evented um, or event-driven system um, just because of the demands of a GUI. So, uh, you know, it is an old model and it's uh, one that, you know, some developers are very familiar with, but some kind of come to JavaScript and kind of rub up against it a bit. So I think I think the I usually think about evented systems. Um, I think that the way the analogy given about the coffee shop is is good. I think it helps understand what evented is, but I think it misses other options. Um, I, I think there's a, a class of people who think that evented solutions are basically the only way to get good concurrency. And um, as people probably know, threaded systems actually work out okay. Um, I don't really want to get get into an analogy war. I don't really want to figure out what threads mean in terms of a coffee shop, but um, there's definitely a, a fetishization of events. I think in UI environments, they make a lot of sense because almost everything that's happening is response, responding to a, a thing the user is doing. It's like conceptually evented. When the user clicks, I would like to do this. But uh, that it's not obvious that just because it makes sense when you're talking about responding to user events that that is also the correct way to do uh, concurrent programming. Right. So I guess my question is, um, so I trigger an event, then does that function that needs to be executed get thrown on a queue somewhere and it just says, okay, well, you know, these have all had their events fired, so I just work through them? Or, you know, does it just execute them one at a time and, you know, does that kind of block the thread, uh, events, so to speak? Or? So user events that come from a user, like um, if you're in a browser, uh -huh. What's usually happening is that 99, most of the time your app is idle. It's not doing anything at all. Right. And as soon as you start moving the mouse, then the browser says, okay, I, there is an event that has happened. The user has moved the mouse. It's, does anyone care about a mouse move? If anybody cares, immediately invoke their callback. And then most of the time people are not triggering, listening for mouse moves. So nothing happens. And so the browser continues being an idle in between every incremental mouse move. And eventually you go and you click on something. And then the browser says, okay, you clicked on something. Is there anybody who has registered a listener for that thing? Um, if so, run their code right away. So that's like, that's basically how the browser event system works. Uh, if a user triggers an event, usually that is executed immediately. So um, unless, basically the reason why a lot of times in JavaScript you'll see an idiom, which is like set timeout, function, do something, one, or something like that, is that basically if you don't do that, then any code that you run is executed in line. So people sometimes will run a set timeout, which basically says, run whatever code there is, and when you're totally done running the code, you're gonna go back into that idle state, they like, nothing is happening now, except that part of what happens in the idle state is that the browser says, okay, is there any timer that has elapsed? If there's a timer that's elapsed, go run that callback. So essentially, a timer that's elapsed is basically equivalent to the user moving their mouse or clicking something, except that the browser is keeping track of how much time needs to elapse. Right. So the other question I guess that brings up is, let's say that I'm being really smart and I set things up so that um, on mouse move I have like 10 different events that all get triggered because I moused over a certain div. So does it does it execute those in a specific order or does it just, you know, trigger them all and spin off threads for each one or how does that work? So in job, browser JavaScript, there is, things never happen concurrently except for if they have, do not share the, the same state, the global scope. So the only concurrent behavior is like in a web worker, which has its whole own JavaScript scope. Right. Um, but what happens, the, uh, historically it has not been the case that it was uh, standardized, but now 
the rule is because it's like essentially works its way everywhere is they're executed in the order that they were registered. And that's, that's also been true about jQuery's event system for a long time. So basically you mouse over and the browser says, okay, an event has happened. Does anyone have any callbacks? And there's a list basically internally, which is a list of the callbacks. And it will basically just run through them in order. Um, and until it's done running all those callbacks in order, it doesn't go back and say, okay, we're now in idle. And what's actually really important is that the only time that the browser is willing to render things is during that idle state. So basically uh, what, what you can easily make the browser hang by simply uh, saying when the mouse, when you click on this, do a loop and wait a minute, wait a second. The browser will oh. hang because basically any, no Ajax, no other callbacks can run. Basically the browser is just sitting there saying, okay, I'm running code and doesn't, there's no, it's not like in the background the browser is always like, oh, the Ajax will come back, run it now. The browser only does those things when it's idle. Okay. So it's and, basically in the middle of running those callbacks. And, so, and that's the advantage too is that it, then runs that stuff when it's ready and you can just say okay and then when this next thing's ready then run so it can go back into that idle state and do its other work correct so related to this stuff is there some kind of way to see kind of the contents of, of the event queue in the browser is there any kind of way uh, to so, inspect that so if you're using jquery which most people are jquery has you can there's ways to inspect jquery's internals which are soon going to be exposed to get it um, and there's also discussions about the browser exposing the callbacks. That, so jQuery, uh, John Resig of jQuery occasionally asks, like, what could we do to improve the browser for jQuery? And one of the things on his list is always like, give me access to the list of callbacks. Because that way, if we had that, it would be easier for us to use that system instead of doing our own. Um, but basically, if you use jQuery, it's under, uh, there's an Events. There's a sorry. There's a data cache for every element, and you can go inspect that. And there's a uh, events property in there. However, that is ultra ultra private. It is perhaps useful for debugging, but you're not relying on that for actual code. But that, that that does have a list of all the events and all the callbacks that are bound for them. All right. Cool. Does anyone else have something to ask or add? Well, I, I was going to say I have seen people do what Yehuda was saying, where they create a loop and check the time and just do that in the loop to and because they don't understand the model of set timeout or they Correct. want to make it synchronous. I've seen that where um, they'll they'll force it to wait a second synchronously, and that's just a terrible idea. Indeed. Uh, so a really common case where this is done on purpose is the browser uh, people um, ad companies. They would like to be notified when you leave the page and. They do not want to have to follow the normal rules. So what they do is they register it on unload hook. But on unload hooks run, and basically they don't. The browser doesn't say when you're done. We'll just sit there waiting for any callbacks. It's like immediately shuts you off. So uh, ad vendors are like, actually, I would really like to know what that you left. So I'm going to make an AJAX request or whatever it is that I would do, and then I'm going to sit in a spin loop forever, waiting for like an amount of time, like 10 seconds or five seconds, until I allow the on unload hook to finish. And basically what that means, sometimes you may notice you close the tab and it's like, why is this tab not closing? Why is it taking several seconds? It's because probably there's an un unload hook registered on that page that's Whoa. intentionally blocking the browser from closing so it can force the Ajax request to complete. Wow. That's, that's bad. Cool. Yes. 
I think I've heard, and I'm not sure if Chrome has done this, but I've heard that Chrome is going to like not allow, like basically not allow this to happen. Like it's going to force close on unload hooks. But I, obviously that is like has implications for ads and blah, blah, blah. Huh. I've never thought of that before. I've had that problem, but if we know where I wanted to delay it, but so, that's a so, terrible approach. <laughs> so your example of where you're using the set timeout and then it checks the time and things like that, you're talking like there's a better way to do that. Well, no, I think, well, I think what AJ was saying was that um, instead of using set timeout, people are like, they just do a loop and then inside the loop, they do like var date equals new date. And then inside the loop, they're like, if date is bigger, if new date minus date is bigger than a thousand break. Yeah, so exactly. They're, they're like, I would like to wait a thousand milliseconds now. And so they do that. No, what you should do is you should use set timeout. And yeah, which and basically let the breath. Oh, okay. That's different from what I was saying before earlier on. That makes sense. All right. Well, um, we're, we're still kind of getting into the flow on this podcast. Um, we... We're going to go ahead and get into the picks. Um, I used to explain like every time on Ruby Rogues what they are. If you're not familiar with the format of these podcasts, uh, basically a pick is something that we enjoy, that we use, that we like. It doesn't have to be code related. And it's just, you know, it's just kind of a, a chance to share what we're up to and, and things like that. So, um, you know, sometimes people will pick things that they're working on right now. And uh, sometimes people will pick like TV shows and stuff that they're listening to. So um, we will do the picks and we'll start with AJ. Why don't we start with you so I get the format of this better? Okay. We will start <laughs> with Chuck. Rejected. <laughs> So um, as you can tell, I'm not as familiar with JavaScript as I am with, say, Ruby or some of the other languages that I programmed in. And so to kind of get ready for this, I started reading JavaScript, the good parts. And I'm not, you know, I'm not expert enough to say that, you know, everything in there is terrific or not. But there are definitely some concepts in there that I had I was already familiar with. And there were some other concepts in there that really... Um, really were clarified for me. So like the, the prototype... Uh, thing that you have with inheriting from an object, uh, you know, and, and the function stuff, some of the function stuff that's there. Um, it really helped clarify that stuff. So that's definitely one of my picks is the, the um, JavaScript, the good parts. Um, one other pick that I have, and this is something that uh, my, my wife and I have gotten into. We, we have a Netflix subscription and uh, we can watch the Netflix movies through our uh, Blu-ray player, through the wireless. And we've really been enjoying... Um, Merlin, uh, The Adventures of Merlin, and uh, it's a BBC, BBC show, and I can't talk today. Uh, it's a BBC show, and um, basically, it's if you like the canonical Arthurian legend, then this show probably isn't for you because they've changed a lot, but um, it's a fun show to watch, and, and it's really, you know, takes some interesting turns here or there. So those are my picks, and uh, anyway, um, Yehuda, why don't you go ahead and go next since you're now a veteran of the picks because you were on Ruby Rogues this morning. Yeah, um, I feel weird. I can't think of anything obvious that I didn't already say this morning. I'll repeat what I said this morning. Okay, seems good. Um, so a couple books. So I recently started a new company um, called Tilda, and I've sort of been thinking about a bunch of entrepreneurial uh, topics for a while, I'm sort of in anticipation, and then joining the company. And two books that I really recommend if you're either uh, starting a company now or um, thinking about starting a company or if you're in a company where you have full control over sort of product design and shipping and all that um, would be uh, the Lean Startup book, which I think is like sort of... You cut out there for a second, Yehuda. I just Googled Tilda and the first thing I found was an enormous picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know if that's related to Yehuda's company or not, but <laughs> probably it is. 
Yeah, it looks like he dropped off again. Peter, why don't you give us some picks, and then when Yehuda comes back, we'll let him finish. Okay, cool. Um, just so you're aware, Charles, um, BBC have also done um, a thing called Sherlock, which is bringing Sherlock Holmes up to the modern day, um, which is really, really cool as well. So just thought I'd throw it out there for anyone who's on a BBC kick at the moment. That is pretty good. Um, I've, I've heard what, it's good. It's pretty good, um, which I didn't want to watch it at first, but I got dragged into it, so... Uh, Good stuff. Um, I am actually going to ignore the advice about it's not going to be coding stuff. Um, I There's an article by John Resig, which is actually really relevant to today's episode, called How JavaScript's Timers Work. Um, I'll give you the link so that can go in the show notes. That might be useful for people that have been listening to this. Um, he's put a really cool diagram together about it. Um, other than that, of course, I really should plug the conference that I'm co-chairing, which is Fluent Conference, which is a JavaScript conference by O'Reilly. not going to say much about it, other than you can see it at uh, Fluent. I think it's fluentconf.com. Uh, but not today, because it's the blackout and O'Reilly's taking part in that. Um, and other than that, the, another thing I'd like to recommend is um, Reg Braithwaite. You may have heard of him. Um, he goes by Reagan Wald, I think, on Hacker News and... Um, on Twitter and so on. And he's been doing some really cool blog posts about JavaScript recently, the most recent of which is called um, Captain Obvious on JavaScript. And he talks about um, how JavaScript functions work and um, kind of like the whole idea of uh, being able to replace any expression by a function. He really digs into that idea. Um, so very keen to support his work. He does some really good blog posts. So I'll send a link for that over as well. All right. AJ. Okay. So since this is our first episode, I feel that it's mandatory to mention the uh, Crockford videos and YUI blog. Um, I take a lot of my coding style from Crockford's recommendation and have just learned a ton by watching those videos and re-watching some of them because it was way over my head the first time I ever came across them. So I'll have a link for that. Um, and also, I just found a really cool node module that lets you send SMS text messages through Google Voice. And um, that's pertinent because we're testing some software. We, we want to we make sure that uh, our devices are, are up continually um, and that there's you know, no, no crashes or, or stops in service. And so I'm, I'm thinking to use this uh, along with our test to have it send me a text message anytime anything goes down. So I'll give you a link to that. It's called Node Google Voice. All right. Sounds really cool. I might have to look into that. Uh, Jameson. Um, my first one is definitely 750words.com. Uh, so it's 750words.com. It's like my secret diary thing. Um, it, it, it's kind of based on the idea that you should do your morning pages, like write some every time you get up in the morning to kind of get your brain flowing. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it for a couple of weeks, and it's actually made a difference. Um, lots of times it's full of like, oh, it's so early, I'm so tired when I write. But um, I've found that it helps me um, kind of reflect back on my life and also um, just have creative time built in to think about stuff. So um, that's, that's a great one. And then um, my other one is uh, it's kind of an old one, but there's a book called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. It's a, it's a big old nerdy programmer book, but it, it's basically how to, to work with code that isn't under test and how to break it up so that it is, it is testable so that you can maintain it and, and change it without fear of, of breaking stuff. Um, so that was my picks. All right. Sounds good. Um, really quickly, just a few business items. Um, I'm hoping to get this into iTunes pretty quickly. Um, and so if you could leave us a review, that would be great. 
Um, I also mentioned that, uh, you know, if you're used to some of the other podcasts I do, they kind of have their own flow and we're kind of new to talking to each other. So, um, you know, give us a few weeks to kind of gel. And then I think these are really going to take off. I, I know that there were some, you know, continuity issues before. So, um, other than that, um, go check out fluent conf for Peter. Uh, it sounds really interesting. Is that going to be in San Francisco? Yeah. San Francisco, May 29th through 31st. Yep. And uh, out here in Utah, they're also planning a JavaScript conference, but I don't think they've finalized the dates on that yet. So um, if you want to submit to their call for proposals, you can do that at utahjs.com. Is it .com or .org, guys? Uh, I think it's .org. Anyway, it's nope, one of... it's .com. I lied. Okay. And uh, other than that, if you have feedback, go ahead and uh, you can email me, chuck at teachmetocode.com, um, or you can leave comments on the blog at javascriptjabber.com. And uh, we will, um, we'll catch you next week.